0: It's a bit of a soft reading, one might say. It's, uh, it's a fairly general sort of thing. It covers a fair bit of ground at a relatively superficial level, but that means I think it affords us the opportunity to take the conversation in, uh, in any direction from there that we so choose. So, so it's mildly constrained by the reading, but uh, the reading gives us a lot of wiggle room and there's a lot we can, we can come back to. Anyway, I shall begin. In the old Roadrunner cartoons, Wiley Coyote would frequently find himself running off the edge of a cliff. But he wouldn't, as our experience with gravity might lead us to expect, start falling to the ground below, at least not right away. Instead, he would hover motionless in puzzlement. It was only when he realised there was no longer any ground beneath him that he would suddenly crash downward. We are all Wiley Coyote. Since human beings began thinking about things... We have contemplated our place in the universe, the reason why we are all here. Many possible answers have been put forward, and partisans of one view or another might have occasionally disagreed with each other. But for a long time, there has been a shared view that there is some meaning, out there somewhere, waiting to be discovered and acknowledged. There is a point to all this, things happen for a reason. This conviction has served as the ground beneath our feet, as the foundation on which we've constructed all the principles by which we live our lives. Gradually, our confidence in this worldview has begun to erode. As we understand the world better, the idea that it has a transcendent purpose seems increasingly untenable. The old picture has been replaced by a wondrous new one, one that is breathtaking and exhilarating in many ways, challenging and vexing in others. It is a view in which the world stubbornly refuses to give us any direct answers about the bigger questions of purpose and meaning. The problem is that we haven't quite admitted to ourselves that this transition has taken place, nor fully accepted its far-reaching implications. The issues are well known. Over the course of the last two centuries, Darwin has upended our view of life, Nietzsche's madman bemoaned the death of God, existentialists have searched for authenticity in the face of absurdity, and modern atheists have been granted a seat at society's table. And yet, many continue on as if nothing has changed. Others revel in the new order, but placidly believe that adjusting our perspective is just a matter of replacing a few old homilies with a few new ones. The truth is that the ground has disappeared beneath us, and we are just beginning to work up the courage to look down. Fortunately, not everything in the air immediately plummets to its death, Wiley Coyote would have been fine if he had been equipped with one of those Acme-brand jetpacks, so that he could fly around under his own volition. It's time to get to work building our conceptual jetpacks. What is the fundamental nature of reality? Philosophers call this the question of ontology, the study of the basic structure of the world, the ingredients and relationships of which the universe is ultimately composed. It can be contrasted with epistemology, which is how we obtain knowledge about the world. Ontology is the branch of philosophy concerned with the nature of reality. We can also talk about an ontology, referring to a specific idea about what that nature actually is. The number of approaches to ontology alive in the world today is somewhat overwhelming. There is the basic question of whether reality exists at all. A realist says, of course it does. But there are also idealists who thinks that, who think that capital M mind is all that truly exists and the so-called real world is just a series of thoughts inside that mind. Among realists, we have monists who think that the world is a single thing, and dualists who believe in two distinct realms, such as matter and spirit. Even people who agree that there is only one type of thing might disagree about whether there are fundamentally different kinds of properties, such as mental properties and physical properties, that those things can have. And even people who agree that there is only one kind of thing and that the world is purely physical might diverge when it comes to asking which aspects of that world are quote-unquote real versus quote-unquote illusory. Are colours real? Is consciousness? Is morality? Whether or not you believe in God, whether you are a theist or an atheist, is part of your ontology, but far from the whole story. Quote-unquote religion is a completely different kind of thing. It is associated with certain beliefs, often including belief in God, although the definition of God can differ substantially within religion's broad scope. Religion can also be a cultural force, a set of institutions, a way of life, a historical legacy, a collection of practices and principles. It's much more and much messier than a checklist of doctrines. A counterpart to religion would be humanism, a collection of beliefs and practices that is as varied and malleable as religion is. The broader ontology typically associated with atheism is naturalism. There is only one world, the natural world, exhibiting patterns we call the laws of nature, and which is discoverable by the methods of science and empirical investigation. There is no separate realm of the supernatural, spiritual or divine, nor is there any cosmic teleology or transcendent purpose inherent in the nature of the universe or in human life. Life and consciousness do not denote essences distinct from matter. They are ways of talking about phenomena that emerge from the interplay of extraordinarily complex systems. Purpose and meaning in life arise through fundamentally human acts of creation rather than being derived from anything outside ourselves. Naturalism is a philosophy of unity and patterns describing all of reality as a seamless web. Naturalism has a long and distinguished pedigree. We find traces of it in Buddhism, in the atomists of ancient Greece and Rome, and in Confucianism. Hundreds of years after the death of Confucius, A Chinese thinker named Wang Chong was a vocal naturalist campaigning against the belief in ghosts and spirits that had become popular in his day. But it is really only in the last few centuries that the evidence in favour of naturalism naturalism has become hard to resist. Alright, so it was quite a long reading in the end, it took longer than I thought. And that was it. (laughs)
1: Oh, yeah, that, that was it. That was quite a few of things, you know.
0: There were a lot of things uh-huh. in there, so I'll keep it open so that we can keep referring back to it if we want. Yeah,
1: um, if, if, if it wasn't for very tame dealing with religion, I would think it would be Daniel Dennett. Yeah, but,
0: it wasn't Daniel I, um, It. It, was, it
1: wasn't. It yeah. wasn't, no, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, I'll tell you who it is later. But it, it's. It's a popular science writer and a, and also a, a scientist who who I think is a is a very lucid writer on a broad range of things. I have some issues with his worldview, which maybe we'll get to. Uh, but he's someone that I, I like and respect quite a lot, and I think that you. Uh, I mean, we've certainly talked about him in the past, and I think that you'd probably. Yeah,
1: yeah. It no, sounds. He sounds quite lucid. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm not not entirely sure if the problem that he you know suggests there is, is actually as uh, acute or as, you know, paramount Mm -hmm. as he suggests. I, like, I tend to think that people in general, they don't inhabit the, you know, uh, philosophical, they don't, uh, uh, like, take a philosophical position or philosophical scope of life that will then position that question to them. Like, I think a lot of people, and people in general, like, people in their routine life they just leave you know mm-hmm. I don't think they uh, deal with the meaning of what to do in general of you know what's the meaning of life or their being in general I think they deal with what is the meaning of now what is the meaning of you know me doing this you know dusk what where I'm going with this mm-hmm. like I don't think like, I think you know, only people who have I mean like luxury so to speak or you know inclination, to go further than uh, their present problems, they will be. They are the ones who actually have that issue.
0: Yeah, I think there's probably some truth to that. I mean, there's there's a couple of things I could say as a bit of pushback against that. I mean, one is the idea that even though uh, these philosophies might not be explicit in the worldview of you know your average person, mm-hmm. that they might be somehow the underlaborers. For that worldview, I think that term comes from John Locke. And he talks about the role of philosophy being an underlaborer for science. But I think that could po- possibly be generalised a lot more to suggest that you know the role of philosophy is as an underlaborer for worldviews in general, and that for a lot of people they do have a philosophy, uh, as as we might say but that it is not explicit. But nonetheless, it is, in fact, shaping their worldview and the way they interact with the world. The other thing I might say in response to that is that maybe that has been true, maybe what you're saying has been true in the past. I mean, maybe it's true now as well, but maybe people are now at least in the West, you know, we, mo- most people or a majority of people have this luxury now. And in some sense, they are actually developing the inclination as well, because they are, they're paying attention to so many uh, different things now. And, you know, it's often been said that, you know, everybody has an opinion and every, you know, people are very vocal now, people are talking about a lot of this stuff. Uh, but, again, they might not be explicitly using terms like ontology and epistemology and things like that, but they are actually discussing things that are are moving closer and closer to those realms. And, you know, a a philosopher might be uh, a little bit um, concerned that they are discussing these deeply philosophical issues without any training in, you know, rigorous thinking, critical thinking or epistemology.
1: Yeah, but I would think, you know, my line of thought would be that we kind of want as humanity to leave individuals to decide what's the meaning of life because mm-hmm. we kind of go to the point where we know that we can't know it for sure and we know that we've been wrong, well, basically all the times we propose the meaning to life. Mm. And uh, so if we say, hey, you know, naturalism is the way or, you know, whatever is the way, Idealism, whatever the way it is, if we say this is the way, we uh, you know put ourselves in a position where we have a high chance of being wrong in details or in the large you know scheme of things. So, yeah, I think it would be just you know better functionally better to allow humans to decide it for themselves, but to provide a background so that they can rely on it, you know, on their quest. And uh, in that case, I would think that you know, the kind of a ground that uh, whoever this author is talking about, or, you know, a jetpack, rather, would be, you know, a position of humanity in life. I guess that, you no, know, naturalism can help us. It can help mm-hmm. us to shape the understanding of at least, you know, how we came to be here. And, um, but it has to be done in a way that does not contradict, you know, like large, you uh, schools of thoughts, like, you know, large religious schools of thoughts. Mm -hmm. So obviously, you know, you can't have everybody like you can't have, you know, like I don't know, Nazis here, right? You can't accommodate, you know, some extreme Hindu sects that, you know, say we should, you know, just like throttle everybody but uh, we can agree on, you know, some basic things that your life, you know, is part of humanity. So as long as you're uh, like you can rely on humanity, and humanity can rely on you. Like something along those lines, right? So, uh, some framework that positions you as the uh, individual of humanity, mm. and your meaning, like, will be intrinsically either you know um, drawn from the meaning of humanity or connected with it in some in one way or another. Mm. So I think
0: there's a distinct, uh, that, you know, the, the meaning of life and ontology or, or a metaphysic, you know, having an ontology or having a metaphysic, um, those are two distinct things. And they're wrapped up together in very intimate ways, of course. And I think that people often confuse them with each other. So a lot of people, perhaps... I don't know about a lot of people, but there, there is the impression that a um, a percentage of religious people who have a particular ontology that includes God or um, you know creation myths they feel very threatened. They feel that their meaning of life is threatened by a naturalistic <clears throat> ontology, and some of the antagonism between science and religion arises from this. I wouldn't say it's it's a confusion as such, because I think that the two are extremely interdependent. You know, I think meaning of life, the meaning of life and, and ontology are very inter- interdependent things, but they aren't actually the same thing. And so it is possible to have, say, a naturalistic uh, ontology but to preserve all the meaning that had previously been you know, codified in, in religious text, you might have to modify your ontology slightly because maybe you do take you know, certain principles like you know, empirical evidence to be to be very meaningful. Maybe you just see the power that science has in terms of transforming reality, manipulating elements of reality, and you think, well, that that can't be denied but I can accept the, you know, the scientific naturalistic worldview without thereby losing the meaning that is what I'm really clinging to. You know, maybe people are clinging to ontology rather than clinging to the meaning because they're, they're unable to separate those two things.
1: Yeah, no, that, that I would definitely agree, especially uh, because you know a lot of religions will change their ontologies mm. over the course of their lifetime. Like, you know, uh, Judaism has changed a lot, and so, you know, Judaism of, uh, you know, the prophets is completely different to Judaism now, but it's still Judaism, you know, essentially, mm. and it's what you are supposed to be doing and what your meaning in this, uh, you know, universe is, is still the same. Mm. You no, know, there's God, you're still a servant of God, you still have to do X, Y, Z, and then, you know, you get boons or you don't get them. But the structure of the universe has changed dramatically. Mm. And the details of what you should be doing also change dramatically. But the essence kind of stayed the same. And we see that, you know, in many religions, you know, Christianity was the same, though not as dramatic. Mm. Because, I mean, I guess it's just, you know, younger. Hinduism, very much the same. So, I I think you're right in the way that we don't need ontologies uh, to... um, kind of have meanings that we want to have so mm. we can definitely know shift like for instance i can uh, i mean i actively do that all the way all the time right so i can actively uh, connect religion and you know naturalism sure. like with no problem at all uh because you can just put yourself put the god out uh, like you know as laws of uh, yeah. nature well spinoza one...
0: you know the, spin- huh? the god of... classically the god of spinoza for example yeah. you know you can yeah. keep the and word
1: <laughs> Yeah, like, you don't have to do anything else. You can still, you know, allow for miracles. You can allow for God to, if you if you want to, you can allow for God to talk directly to Moses, you know, should you wish to have that. Uh, but that will be somewhat harder to, you know, connect with the histori- his, history. Mm. But, like, you can. And uh, that means that, you know, that battle between... Uh, Like science and religion is essentially, you know, a kind of a meaningless battle. Like, you know, the people are battling not what they state that they're, you know, fighting over. Mm. Like, they state that they're fighting over the, I I mean, essentially the anthology of the world, right? Mm. How, what the world is, how it came into being, how we came into being here. But what they actually fighting, you know, for is the meaning of life. Is the meaning mm. of a human in this universe?
0: Yeah, no, I think, and
1: that, I think that's true. And you
0: know, I think an interesting corollary of this is that there are certain pressures that are implicit or explicit in the in the naturalist worldview, in the scientific worldview, that do seem to put additional pressure on the idea of a of a, a god in uh you know not in a spinozan sense like in in a more classically christian or or any of the other you know religious senses which is that there is this desire and it's really it's kind of a reductionist desire but to demonstrate that the universe is a closed causal system you know like to to reduce everything down to the most fundamental level and show, and I think there—that's a word we can talk about—fundamental because I think there are interesting issues there. But um, to reduce it down to the fundamental level, which in practice, in reductionist science, tends to mean the smallest stuff we can <laughs> we can find, uh, and then to show that it's the action of things at that level that produces all of the rest, and thus that the universe is this. So it's a very modest idea that the universe is this one thing these processes at the fundamental level it's a closed system there is no outside of this system and so that very much um uh is is um in conflict with the idea of an interventionist god as opposed yeah, to a know, god that is nature yeah, I mean,
1: like you know some gnostics would say, yeah, this is exactly the way universe is because mm. you know that big stuff is God, like you mm. know, V God. Mm. But then there are smaller parts of that universe that are smaller gods, and some of them are conscious. Mm. Like they can like you can find a way if you want to construct, sure. you know, this worldview, you can always find a way within you know physical system. Like, you know, you can you can perfectly marry, you know, world worldview with you know quantum physics. Well,
0: it's been done. I mean, it's it's a big, not necessarily castanadian, but uh, that's that's a, a popular thing to do, particularly with a you know an Advaita Vedanta worldview. At the moment, yeah. it's very popular to to ally that with some you know smearing of quantum physics.
1: Yeah, definitely, <laughs> because you mean you're obviously not the you know people who are doing that they you know not into quantum mechanics at the level that you know quantum physicists understand that generally not. Um, yeah, uh, like a side point here, I mean, it's like an interesting thing because this conversation can be like a web. Um, a side point here is how uh, scientists construct the meaning of life out of the ontology, mm-hmm. right? So they have ontology and then they go for the meaning of life. And then they go and fight with religious people because now they think that they have a meaning of life. Well, in fact, science doesn't provide us with answers on what the life is, you know, about. Mm. It provides us with the answers of, you know, how it all came to be. Mm. And because people, people conflate those two questions, they now think that they have an answer, but in fact, they don't. Yeah. And That's... it's like it's, but they are very, you know, deep inside themselves. They they think that. They might not know what it is, but they know what it isn't. Yeah. And they know what it isn't. It's it's not, you know, what Christians tell them you know, or, you know, Islam is telling them. Like, it's not that. And then they go and fight with that. It's really funny. Yeah, I think... Uh, because, I think... You, know, you know why it's wrong, why Christian worldview is wrong? Because their ontology is wrong,
0: right? Mm. You know... Yeah, no, I think this conflation of ontology and meaning... And again, for obvious reasons, because they are very interdependent, but that definitely happens on on both sides, and I think that yeah. that's partly because we really crave meaning, uh, and we I think we have evolved to crave meaning. I mean, it comes out of our you know pattern recognition, um, proclivity. Yeah. Uh, We need to put things together in sequences of causal events and and one of the the most effective ways of doing that is to tell stories and, you know, stories have, you know, definite beginnings and, you know, we derive our meaning from them. So I think, and, and science very clearly grows out of that ancient process of storytelling and now it has this kind of uneasy relationship with its own origins you know it's the classic like douglas adams joke about you know humans are not proud of their ancestors and never invite them over for dinner you know science is a little (laughs) bit like that you know science is not at all proud of its ancestry and it is you know trying to distance itself as much as possible for that without having really transcended some of the functions like meaning of that ancestry uh, and just go- yeah. going back to God for a, like a, a brief moment um, you know again this this idea of the universe as, as a closed system I mean as you and I have agreed many times you can imbibe the entirety of the scientific worldview that's actually supported by by evidence and all of the explanations for the way the the universe got to be the way it is, including humans, including you know evolutionary biology, but simply choose not to apply one of science's you know favorite principles, Occam's razor, and you can say you can multiply causal entities beyond necessity, which is to say that you can believe that God put the whole process in motion and there's nothing that forbids you from doing that except for the apple and Occam's razor is just a principle it's not a you know it's not a law or anything like that so there's nothing that forbids you from doing that and really you've got this question which is still the most fundamental question in physics which is why these laws why are the laws of physics the way they are and that's why we have things like string theory that's why we have theories of multiverses and all of this really exotic stuff that, that comes out of physics out of cosmology these days is you know in some way addressing the why these laws question so it remains entirely open although you know frown, philosophically frowned upon within the scientific worldview to accept naturalism in its, well, you don't accept naturalism in its entirety because naturalism really is about the application of this Occam's razor principle, but you accept the, um, the conclusions of science, the data, yeah. the evidence, the explanatory power, but then you say, yeah, but I can still have God.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you can exactly do that. And I, I, I personally see no problem with that. I personally think, you know, if people want to do that, they're welcome to. Because it's not unscientific, in mm. a way. Like, no, nothing that we know about universe, you know, as you said, you know, says that you should not do that. Like, nothing that you know, there is no as, exa- as you said, right? There is no law mm. that says you should not do that. So, and there's plenty. I believe, I believe strongly that scientists, as a community, should not, you know, tell people not to do that. You know, they. I I actually think that instead of you know constantly fighting this war. You know, over over God, with religious people, they should say, "Hey, people, you know, this is the you know like most rigorous investigations results that we have about the world, about the history of the world. This is it. Like, you will be not really smart to argue with it. However, (laughs) if you want to have your God." There are plenty of opportunities for you to have your God. Just adjust what you believe in, you know? Mm. Like, re- reread read your books and, you know, read them as metaphors. Read them as wise people writing metaphors. And then you'll be perfectly fine. Like, I think science has to go out of its way to actually do that because, mm. you know, there is this... Completely unnecessary conflict, and mm. this conflict is you know taxing for humanity and it's taxing for our progress. Mm. And it's like built on thin air, you know, we don't need it. Yeah, no, I, like, I, I agree. It doesn't, you know, advance us in any way, it doesn't give us anything, it just gives us a food between really, you know, one group of people and another group of people. And because we then mm. we have. This conflict, both sides are invested on, in on that conflict, and because of that, solely because of that, people on the side of religion they deny science mm. because of this conflict. But if you you know find a way towards them, find a way you know to say, hey guys, we're not actually attacking your core belief, which we state that we are attacking, in fact, right? So if we say we are not in any way attacking God, the idea of God. They will be more prone to, you know, actually accept some facts about science, yeah. some, you know, about planet, and then maybe we'll have better chance against climate change. Maybe. Even.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, From- we can merely say that we don't need God. We, you know, we have explanatory principles that we believe, and it is, it is belief. You know, we can't, we can't demonstrate this. Uh, and mm-hmm. of course, we, we, you know, we we're getting better and better at understanding these things, and we have no intention of of you know, stopping our attempt to explain reality at any given point, obviously we're just going to keep going because that's, that's what we're driven to do. So we can simply say we have a, an explanation, we call it naturalism, say, and according to these various principles, these various theories that make up, uh, basically make up modern science, it seems to us like we don't need a god. But you can still have it, you know, that's fine. But we just don't need it. So don't, as long as you don't tell me I have to believe in God, I won't tell you you can't believe in God. And we can all just get on and move forward with stuff. <laughs>
1: yeah, that'll be great. Mm.
0: And the interesting thing
1: the in, inter- instead of Sam Harris, or actually, if Sam Harris took that position and mm. uh, Sam Harris's clique would also took that position would uh, so that would be really relieving I
0: mean, a very interesting thing is that in order to try and answer these why these laws question uh, this question we are uh, we're multiplying entities that's for sure I mean we're massively increasing the um, the size of The universe or the multiverse well beyond what we can actually observe at the moment. And of course, there's a lot of tension in theoretical physics about this, about, say, string theory and the fact that currently there are no observations that support it or whatever, but nobody really says this is not at all scientific or this is completely illegitimate. It's just yeah. it's just that, you know, people are, are concerned with the marketing of string theory because it's been so popular in terms of, you know, popular science books and and, you know, Boffins who, who like physics but aren't physicists. And there are some theoretical physic- physicists who are a bit disgruntled about that. And then they try to say, oh, you know, this isn't really as legitimate as as, as um as it might you might be led to believe because it's not supported by any empirical evidence, and that's fine and that's true, but we are multiplying entities well beyond what we can actually observe uh, in order to try and explain the way the universe is. And interestingly, I, I, I kind of see that itself as a little bit of an insecurity of the scientific worldview. It's it's kind of done in response to the threat of God creeping into worldviews because you could just say, hey, the laws of physics are just the way they are. You know, you could just say there are <laughs> such things as brute facts in the universe. Um, that, you know, certain things just happen to be the way they are. And you can avoid the whole issue of the anthropic principle that way. You can say, look, it could have been any number of ways, but it's not at all mysterious that we happen to be Living in a universe which has exactly the right kind of laws to support, you know, ultimately human life because we are here and we only have N equals one. There's nothing mysterious about it. It had to be that way. Um, You know, there are no other options but for the laws to be fine-tuned to support the existence of life and and, and ultimately human life. But there is this anxiety that God kind of gets to creep in if we don't answer the why these laws question. And of course, I definitely think we should try and answer the why these laws question. I think it's a really interesting question and we shouldn't, again, we shouldn't put a cap on on our attempts to to explain the world, I mean, why 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 do that? But there is this this motivation there to you know deflate or destroy the anthropic principle, which itself is motivated by the fear that you know God's going to get in through the back door or something yeah. like that.
1: Yeah, because I mean, because people who you know put forward the explanation for why others uh, wars. Uh, they are motivated by the same desire, they are motivated by the desire of meaning, you know? what do those laws mean, you know? uh, like, mm. what's meaning behind the facts that we have. Yeah. They can't accept that there is no meaning, sure. they can't accept that things are just the way they are, mm. because they are driven, you know, like as I mean, we're kind of discussing, that science is driven by the same notion, right? Mm. it's driven by the notion of finding the meaning behind the facts that we see. And we keep going into you know meaning and then we construct you know big with that meaning we find new facts and with those facts we construct you know even further meaning, right? And uh, with this, in strength with string theory, it's interesting how they can accept the string theory and can accept multi-world interpretation. They would still be like, Yeah, we're not sure, it's not necessarily like this, but this is a theory. They are fine with that. But then would find fine with people saying, Hey, it's just God. Like if, in my understanding, it's essentially you know things on the same on the like same level. Yes, one is more rigorously worked out, and mm. one is you know has mathematical apparatus to support it, mm. obviously. But then you know, like it's still, it still doesn't make it more real. It makes it more complex. It makes it more worked out, but it doesn't make it anyhow more real or more credible. You see what I'm what I mean in this way. Yeah. Like it obviously you know, it has obviously more credibility because you know we have more interconnected theory that you know connects it to the larger way of thinking. But I'm pretty sure that if we put several institutions to work on the God hypothesis in the same way, we will have it also worked out <laughs> and with you know really fine mathematical tuning to it. Well, we have the so, on, you know
0: ontological proofs and things like that. Sure, of the existence yeah, of God. Like, yeah. Well,
1: as far as philosophy goes, philosophy about God and why God exists, mm-hmm. you know, is really, you know, complex and complicated mm-hmm. shit. So, like, I feel this is slightly hypocritical, mm. you know, that, uh, yeah, multi world's fine, multi world is good, you know, big bang and stuff. <laughs> while the, you know, God is not good. Yeah. But uh, getting back to the meaning, meaning stuff. Well, hang on, um, hang on. I just want to talk. I,
0: think, I just want to respond yeah. to the multiple worlds thing for a second because I think there's an interesting uh, aside here. There are there are obviously lots of different kinds of multiverse in physics. Uh, you know, potential kinds of multiverse. You know, there's there's the the universe that is beyond the light cone. So the universe is obviously much bigger than the quote unquote universe. Uh, you know, which is thirteen point seven light billion uh, light years, thirteen point seven billion light years across. Uh, there's that kind of multiverse there's the quantum many worlds theory of Hugh Everett and that's distinguished from the you know different other kinds of multiverse like the string theory multiverse and obviously you know I should mention the first level multiverse is is expected because of inflation to be lots of pocket universes so there'd be you know large spaces large tracts of empty space between you know, universes, which are essentially isolated, um, you know, almost closed causal systems, because they're so far away from each other. So they are. It is like a multiverse. Yeah. Then there's the, the obviously string theory, but many worlds, Hugh its interpretation of quantum mechanics. You know, partly that exists because it is a way to make the mathematics of quantum mechanics deterministic, because there is. Just as there's this unease with um, the God issue, there's also an unease about randomness or, uh, you know, stochasticity, like genuinely stochastic behaviour. Of course, Einstein famously said, God does not play dice. You know, he just a priori did not like the the random element or the purely probabilistic element in quantum theory and Hugh Everett, you know, very ingeniously solved this problem. He made the the mathematics of quantum mechanics completely deterministic, but in order to do so, you get this, you know, slightly weird idea that, you know, with every you know wave function collapse, you get new universes being born. So there are, you know, sp- Splitting parallel worlds, you know, billions of times every you know second or microsecond or, or or whatever. So it's interesting the the massive expansion of our ontology, the the massive multiplication of entities that we are willing to accept, and you know quite a, a large percentage of physicists really like the the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics. Um, just in order to satisfy some you know a prior- principle that we a priori don't like and again maybe it is about meaning maybe
1: yeah if because if the- you have random yeah. random is not me meaningful. exactly random is random. there is no meaning to it exactly i think you know like meaning is uh intrinsic to our evolution you know because it's like you know finding a function for something right mm-hmm. so if you the meaning behind, you know, I don't know, a stone, you understand how it works, you know, how to work with it, how it functions, you can, you know, tailor it to your needs, and then make, you know, I don't know, stone axe out of it. So, with, every time we search for meaning, we get some, you know, function out of it, we get some practicality out of it. And I guess, you know, because uh, it works so well with everything we do, and it works so well with, you know, just like our evolution, we can't escape the what's the meaning of us then, you know, mm. because if we find a meaning for ourselves, we will be able to live our lives better, because we will be doing exactly what we're supposed to be doing, uh, we will be, you no know, like, we will become that stone axe, right, and uh, I think this is kind of a where it has to be, uh, like, this is the answer that we should be answering, right, so how we, uh, uh, like what is the best possible way for a human to live a life mm-hmm. and I think you know this is the question. So uh, the question is not you know where we came from the question is not where we will go the question is not whether there is heaven or hell. The question is what is the best possible way for a human to live his or her life And uh, I think in a weird society we're kind of going there we can construct a framework, uh, that will allow individual to answer that question. Mm. That if you will be presented with, you know, scenarios that you can adjust for our needs. That you know, you can be an adventurer. You can travel because the meaning of life is traveling and new experience. You can be, you know, a whatever a gamer because the meaning of life is to have as you know finished games. I don't know as much trophies on Steam as you can. Like whatever. <laughs> uh, so. You know, discovering uh, new ways of living or discovering how what's the matter, you know, on the very fine level. Like, if we, uh, but it has to be all connected, it has to be all, you know, built on the background that uh, is kind of, you know, axiomatic. Mm. And I think that background can be that, you know, we like humanity, kind like kind of humanity above all, something like that. Like, that's you know humanity is for you but you are for humanity so mm. if your life goes against humanity then you are not living your life to its full potential like just by default because you are you know preventing a lot of opportunities like you're cutting yourself from what you can do
0: sure so we still have this this desire as we do with all these other explanations to reduce the the whole you know complexity the whole plurality of human existence this really messy noisy phenomenon which is the sum total of all individual humans existence we want to preserve people's right to be individualistic but we do want to reduce it in some way to a set of principles or axioms that can encompass all of that diversity and mm-hmm. that can really give people a set of rules to follow. There might be a lot of wiggle room there. There might be any number of ways that you can follow those rules, but the rule m- remains the same. And is that maybe? I mean, you mentioned uh, our desire to explain things and find meaning uh, because we, you know, we're tool makers. We want to know how we can use things. Um, we are, in some sense studying humans there's again this subject object kind of tension and difficulty here which is which is so you know crucial when we're talking about you know the difference between a naturalistic description of reality versus the meaning of a you know an individual human's life but there's this tension there that at the end of the day we still want an object-like description of humans because it's only in that way that we can derive this very abstract set of principles and we hope that it's very simple and can be fit on an A4 page and that if followed it guarantees results Uh, and that's why people are so interested in you know self-help books and you know, new age community and the, the wellness fad and all these things. I mean, it's it's a very, very noisy space still, but there is yeah. some impulse that just give me the answer, man. Like we just want something simple. We want magic bullets.
1: Yeah, but there are no magic bullets. Mm-hmm. No magic bullets so you so you think at all. That it's like if you want to get fit, you have to, work. you know, <laughs> go to the gym, run every day for a prolonged period of time. You can't just take a pill and be fit. If you want to have, uh, you know, if you want to be get rid of depression or you know neurosis, you go, you get to meditate for a couple of months and then you get rid of it. If you want to find the meaning of life, you have to work through, you know, scenarios that people say that you will find the meaning. And you know, but I don't know. I feel like you know I'm a broken record, but I feel like you know all of this, all of the you know uh, different. Um, of like, you know, self help books, you know, all of that stuff. Things that tell you how to find joy in life, how to find the best possible way of life. They all, in one way or another, they are about how to connect with other people. Mm. You know, you can either exploit other people if it's like your know, whatever pickup strategy or something. You can, uh, you know, go out with some people against other people if it's some religion or you know something like that it it's like the ideology mm. but all of them will be about finding a group or exploiting a group and so it seems to me that you know one thing is certain that your happiness is intertwined with humanity sure
0: i mean <laughs> it's unsurprising that humans are obsessed with humans i mean i think one of the the best hypotheses for why we have such complex problem-solving abilities and ultimately such a you know, complex consciousness is because we evolved in an arms race with other organisms, namely other humans, that were developing this complex problem-solving capacity in parallel so that we, you know, we drove the evolution of each other's problem-solving capacity and consciousness By being social organisms. Um, So, really, the most complex thing that we ever do is try to understand other people. Um, So, it's not surprising that so much of our, our conscious energy, you know, so much of our rumination, like all those thoughts which are making people sick. Perhaps, you know, that that are linked with depression and anxiety. Like so many of those are about how other people view us. You know, how do other people view me? Am I going to succeed in this context with other people? Am I going to succeed in relation to other people? You know, am I going to do well in all of these social endeavors? So we, we are obviously completely obsessed with that. And therefore, any prescription for yes doing well you know any principle set of axioms that can guarantee anyone's um happiness would necessarily have to deal with our relationship with other humans because i think there's one thing that nearly everybody agrees on is that it's very difficult although you know some ascetics kinda of manage it, it's very difficult to go off and, and, and live in complete isolation and be happy and be fulfilled. Most mm-hmm. of the you know, the most, dare I say, the most meaningful things in people's lives are of course, you know, their connections with other yeah. people.
1: Yeah, but, to do something for humanity for for instance, right? If you're you you can be a painter or a scientist, but mm-hmm. you are kind of thinking that you're doing something larger than your life. Yeah. You are, you know, creating a masterpiece, you know, a m- brilliant movie, or you are, you know, discovering something completely new that will change the way people perceive it. You are doing it for grander things, you know. You're doing it for bigger, you know, audience than just you, and that gives tremendous amount of meaning to your life. Mm. Like, if you are doing that, you know exactly why you're doing that, and then when if you are successful, you have, you know you feel it because then you are achieved what you know you were aiming for you got the meaning to what you've been doing all the time. Mm. So I think and I, mean... I don't think you know like you have to be really you know big believer in God in order to compete with that. But still then you know because if you're with all the major religions, unless you're actively fighting infidels somewhere and slaughtering them in thousands, You are more or less, you're doing some charity work. You're doing something good for others in one way or another. Because, again, you're slaughtering infidels so that, you know, they don't infiltrate the believers or, you know, they don't alter the course of Islam. Again, you're doing it for somebody else.
0: Sure. There's usually some sort of moralistic motivation there. I mean, I, I,
1: I is the meaning is of life is to be doing something for somebody else i guess.
0: Well, i think it can be taken to an even more abstract level than that. And I mean, i will i will be my, you know, broken record self here and say that i think we basically find life meaningful and are happy to the extent that our attention is captured by things. And i think because our consciousness you know, our, our ability to attend in such an ex- expansive manner evolved in the context of problem-solving and in groups, I think that, you know, to quote David Deutsch, we are happy to the extent that we're solving problems, he says. I say it's more general. We're, we're happy to the extent that our attention is captured and solving problems is a particularly good way of having our attention captured. And directing our attention towards other people again, because that's why we have evolved such problem-solving capacities as we have, is a great way of solving problems and thus having our attention captured. And, you know, you're, you're absolutely right.
1: I have a in, in contradiction to that. Okay. People with de- depression, people with self-obsession, yeah. they have their attention captured, captured perfectly. They're not happy by any means.
0: Uh, I don't actually think that they do have their attention captured. I think that they're extremely bored. Um, So I I will add the caveat, though, and I mean, you make the point that it's having your attention captured by things other than your own rumination, if you want. So it's by things outside yourself. Because your own rumination is is fundamentally chaotic. Um, And it's certainly a principle of you know, many of the systems of self-help that have been around for millennia and seem to be pretty effective, and of course, you know, Buddhism is a favourite for me, uh, that directing your attention outwards is the, f- the fundamental principle. It's not, by the way, you know, further further to our conversation of last night, I think, which I'll just explain for people, but um, it's not about ignoring your thoughts it's not about ignoring things so that they don't become stronger so you were sort of I was to catch people up I was we were talking about society and we were talking about uh, you know issues in society and, and ideas that are um, potentially ha- have negative impacts you know we were actually talking about you know the radical left in particular and I was saying, you know, don't be so reactive to those ideas because when you react to them in this way, you make them stronger. And I used the analogy. I said it's a lot like meditating. It's a lot like your own psyche because when you react to things that arise in your own mind, you do often make them stronger. You make them harder and harder to escape. And, um, and of course, I said that the reason society, well, perhaps the reason society is a lot like an individual psyche is because society is just lots of individual psyches basically so we see you know manifestations of, of similar patterns on different levels of reality. Uh, and you said if it's anything like consciousness or if it's anything like the psyche, then giving them any attention whatsoever rather than you know I would mm-hmm. say hyperreactive, um, is going to make them stronger. So I, you know, I, I disagree with that as a fundamental principle of, of meditation. You know, My favorite uh, aphorism for, say, open monitoring meditation, or really I think it applies to a lot of different kinds of meditation. I'm not sure if I came up with this, probably not, but I can't remember where it came from. I always say, attend to everything, react to nothing. So, to me, it's very important that you are actually aware of everything. You're not ignoring anything. You're paying attention to everything. Yeah, but
1: about ignoring? Yeah, but you're yeah, not but you don't binding. You're not... Could... But you, you fade it out. Like when you uh, you are attending to something, it's, if you are keep attending to it, it will keep being there. If you have a thought and you are, like, while you're meditating, you have a thought. If you just, you know, accepting that it's there, then you turn away your attention, like it's still somewhere, but you're not attending to it. While if you're attending to it, you are, you know, relieving it, you give it, you know, you then following it, like you know, it's like I would say that I, I still stand by by what I say, basically. In my opinion, any attention like barring the just noting that it's there right so you're like okay like you know as uh, those meditated including andy you know they say just note that it's there like you know say that it's thinking so you're like hey, andy okay, from that's headspace thinking. And for those you... that don't know
0: yeah huh? andy from headspace for those that don't know yeah and
1: then, and then you just turn away your attention
0: yeah no like, i don't think this
1: that... we... <laughs> but this this technique is what allows you to turn away your attention yeah, because no, I, you kind of label it as insignificant and then you turn away mm, no so, I,
0: I think that that's a misinterpretation actually uh, to be honest man i mean maybe the difference is just in the words but what you're actually doing is you're not turning away or you're not labeling something as insignificant you're making no value judgment whatsoever yeah, hang on, well, hang on. The value- Stop jumping instinct. in, man. <laughs> let, let me yeah. finish what I'm trying to say. Um, you know, Apologies to the listeners. We are supposed to not be talking over each other. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> what know. you're doing is you are not binding... You know, in, in cognitive science they would call it cognitive binding. So you are observing, you are attending to the thought as it arises, but you're treating it just as though it was any other part of the environment, like the bird song that also just arose, or the you know, feeling in your leg that just arose, or whatever it might be feeling in the leg is kind of a bad example, but you, you are to treat all such things that arise as if they are just parts of your sensorium and not to bind with them. But you're certainly not so you're you're noting them, you're attending to them, but you are not grab you're not reacting to them. You're not grabbing hold of them. So I think that it's not about turning your attention I mean this is just words really, but it's not about turning your attention away. It's about what naturally happens is that the thought kind of runs out of steam um, and just, you know, drops away if you don't bind with it. And by the way, this is a really important thing for me in terms of my view of the mind, which is, you know, um, not necessarily, uh, I don't have a lot of empirical evidence to support this at the moment, and there may be literature out there that even refutes it that I'm not aware of, but... I think it's a mistake that some meditators make or that some... It's often, you know, um, neuroscientists or cognitive scientists who meditate. I think they make the mistake of imagining that the thought just continues in the same sort of way that it would have continued, but you're not riding it. You know, I actually think the the act, if you want to call it an act, or the non-act, the anti-act... Of not binding with the thought has a dramatic effect on the half life of the thought.
1: Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Like it would still continue, it still continues in the background. It continues as a process. Like the process that gave rise to a thought continues until you know its activity runs out. So, but obviously, if you give attention to it, if you're whatever, bind to it, as you say, you prolong its lifetime because you're giving it, sport. like you're putting it in the spotlight. Now it becomes mm-hmm. important. This is what I mean, right? Yeah. So, in terms of importance, it's like you know how much resources does your brain For give sure. to it, and there is you know, like by default, it gives you no know, X amount of resource. But if you attend to it, I guess we're talking about the same thing in a way. But there is, yeah. I feel like there is some slight difference. Like, but maybe there are no slight differences at all. So when you are attending in mind. Terminology when you're <laughs> attending to the thought, you're giving it more resources because you're putting it in a spotlight. So, when I'm looking at the field and there are you know grasshoppers and birds and clouds and everything, I'm not actually attending to any individual thing, I'm attending to a whole, and so I'm not giving uh, any importance to individual parts of the you know scenario that I'm looking at, scenery that I'm looking at, uh, then you know, more than any other part. Uh, so they all, you know, as, as far as their signal, as far as my attention, they're all the same. So when you are meditating and you have a thought and you have, you know, sensorium and you have, you know, birds singing somewhere, you are attending to the, I mean, if you are doing that type of meditation, you're attending it to the whole. And so, uh, yeah, a thought will be, you know, a part of the whole. So, but you're not attending to a thought. See what I'm saying? So yeah, not... yeah. So there's really
0: not any difference in what we're saying, but what I'm saying is it's it's not. It's just a terminological difference.
1: Yeah, I'm saying. But I would say that this this, is, e- this would be t- attention.
0: Yes, you are. So you are attending to the thought, but so what happens when you react to things is that you zero in on them. They occupy yeah. a larger. Proportion of your attentional bandwidth, and then the rest of the whole, in your terminology, recedes out of your attention. That's what the the okay. that's why the, the dictum or the you know my dictum is attend to everything, react to nothing. So you are in yeah, some okay. sense
1: attending I like, to a I whole. Like your... yeah. I um, like yeah. I like and but you are attending. Like I would say, you know, I would change your dictum to attend to the whole rather than individual things, because attend to everything. I mean, maybe it's me just, you know, using mm-hmm. language in a wrong way, but I would feel that if you say, I'm attending to something, that means you kind of zeroing in on that. You kind of, a, it, you, it becomes a focus, because well, that's what attention means.
0: Yeah, yeah, but so I think that, um, I, don't, I don't think that is what attention means, but I think that everything and the whole are essentially synonyms here. So you might prefer to say, attend to the whole, um but attend to everything is a is essentially conceptually exactly the same idea Conceptually, is the same. but it
1: can mean to like i mean i would i would think that a lot of people would understand it as like you know active forceful attention to all the things that there are so if you say if you're I mean, we're sitting you know near the field and you say to somebody you know, attend to everything there. Person will be like all ears and all eyes and trying to capture everything that's there is. Well, clearly, because you'll be like, clearly. you want not to miss anything, right? It's like when you're watching a movie, if you are really attend to pay attention to the movie, like you're attending to everything, you notice everything <laughs> that's
0: there. Yeah, but I don't think you're, you know, if you were to just say to somebody, attend to the whole you couldn't then say and now go off and you're sweet and you'll be a meditation master you know people won't even have a clue what you'd mean by the whole until they have experienced that so i mean in both cases i'm not saying that this dictum you know we can just give people this aphorism and then they will become you know adept meditators you know i'm not even sure that you know me with with many years of meditation under my belt i don't think i'm an adept meditator you know it's it's a very long process um it's just yeah, it's a long
1: just, process. I have to do it every day. Yeah, exactly, and uh, that's sucks. just
0: a, an aphorism that I really like, because for me, and this is, I think, um, you know, backed up by the way people talk about cognitive binding in cognitive science. Um, you know, like when you take something to be part of yourself, essentially, when you assimilate a thought to yourself. Uh, which is normally a process that you don't even uh, notice, right? So, as far as you're concerned, the thought arises and it is part of yourself. You don't actually see the 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 moment, you know that first tiny little bit before it is assimilated to yourself. So t- that's cognitive binding when things are assimilated. And to me that is reacting, because it's just as if I heard a bird. And then that bird, I was like, ooh, you know, it's a, it's a magpie. Or ooh, it's a rose crown fruit dove or something more exotic than a magpie. Although magpies have beautiful songs in Australia. Um, you know, then you are reacting to the thing. And in this case, you're also labelling it, which is, which is a big part of a reaction there. And then for that moment, it blots out the rest of, of the whole. But also note, uh, no pun intended, that things arise and they often do intrinsically capture more of your attention so what actually happens even though you are you have this principle attend to the whole attend to the whole attend to the whole things arise like suddenly there's a there's a a um you know a, a sharp pain in your foot or whatever or you've been sitting for half an hour and suddenly your lower back is 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 hurting for a moment there it arises and it it does, you, you know, you automatically react to it, you know, so to speak. Like it, it straight away becomes a bigger part of your, um, you know, cognitive workspace or your, you know, conscious bandwidth or whatever you know term you want to use there. And then what you do, and I guess this this almost sounds like I'm explaining my way into your initial thing that you turn your attention away because um, you kind of do drop it. You don't react any further to it than that initial arising. Like, it arises, you notice it, and then you don't react any further than the noticing.
1: Yeah, okay, barring the difference in usage of words, I think we kind of have I, the same idea. Yeah, I think we're on the so same page. I, no, I still page. think that <laughs> your usage of attention is not, like, it's more in, in, enlarging, that it's, you know, uh, revealing. But, yeah, okay, we kind of agree.
0: Well, I guess, for me, it's tied in with... So in-
1: to rephrase it then in your words, if you bind with any ideology in society, you give it strength, which is obviously true. So yeah, yeah. But if in like in then you know not not attending to that would be you know to allow it to be and not you know follow it. Sure. Because then atten- Then you know if, if the way you pay attention to ideas in society, you you know Google them. You then you know check out news. They you know trigger your interest and so on that'll be you know your attention and if you do that you definitely give those ideas strength
0: sure i mean that's why i like the you know not being reactive towards the ideas because i think when when you react to them in a you know in a less than mindful fashion if we continue with the analogy it's clearly not an exact analogy i didn't intend it to be an exact analogy but when you react to them in a less than mindful way, so you are not being aware enough really of your reaction because this, this you know stupid way people are behaving or these stupid ideas they are expressing has, you know, irritates you in some way. And whether, again, whether you are actually affected emotionally or whether you are just intellectually irritated is somewhat of a moot point there as well. You know, some people are very good. At um, emotional um, regulation, and so they never sound like they're worked up. You know, it's it's the Sam Harris versus Jordan Peterson divide. There, you know, Sam, he's because no doubt of his of his decades of meditation experience, he is extremely good at regulating his emotions. So Sam pretty much, or well, no, he does sound irritated sometimes, but he's he's pretty good at sounding very measured, speaking calmly. And, you know, I think that that's great. And I think that enables him to have more productive conversations. But that's, with, that's
1: deceiving, that's deceiving, because in yeah, a lot yeah, of ways... Not, I mean, that, that's what I'm trying to say. He's by emotions. That's what I'm he trying to like, say.
0: Exactly what I'm trying to say is that... Uh, he he's he is regulating his emotion. He's not having a big emotional reaction, but there is a big intellectual reaction because some ideas trigger him. Jordan Peterson is the opposite. In, he's not the opposite. Ideas trigger him big time, but he doesn't emotionally regulate in anything like the way that Sam does. You know, Sam, uh, Jordan is always coming off as, as really quite irritated and worked up about things. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of, you know, there are a huge number of people who really like Jordan Peterson. There are also a lot of people who find him very difficult, um, because he not only are his ideas somewhat challenging, um, but he comes across as being irritated all the time and and overly emotive. But you know, my point is exactly what you were saying: is that Sam is actually irritated. Or dismissive, or whatever you want to say of various ideas, he is reacting to those ideas, despite the fact that he's got his emotions under control. And I think that's the, that's the thing that I'm talking about. I'm saying there are ways of engaging and even criticizing these ideas in conversation, in particular, in particular when you're speaking to someone that holds these ideas, uh, that is less reactive. It's more measured. It's more, you know. It's a cliche term, really, in this context, but it's more mindful because you are aware of the way you express your ideas, the effect that is having on the, you know, your your conversation partner. Um, So, yeah, that's that's where I think the analogy is strong, like not to be reactive, but that doesn't mean not to criticize or not to. You know, engage in some way. I think we do have a responsibility to engage and crit- with and criticize yeah. about well, it. If
1: you're criticizing, if you engage with the idea, you definitely make it stronger. You know, if you're like you're polishing it through conflict, if anything, you know, if you're. Uh, but that's okay, with because the if, idea, if you're
0: making it a better yeah. idea, you know, the idea is that that polishing process. It it
1: better. If you, if, you know, i not necessarily agree with Jordan Peterson's. Idea on Marxism here. Mm. But if you take his line of thought, it will be like, you know, uh, people arguing against Marxism led it to be a better Marxist idea, led it to become, you know, postmodernism, which is now dominating the social justice warriors landscape, which is a really powerful idea. So all the years battling against that let us here, let us with the more resilient idea, the idea that is built such that it's, you know, invulnerable to a lot of attacks. Sure. And same can be, you know, said about, you know, the kind of, you know, Trumpism that everything is, you know, like alternative facts, that kind of a thing.
0: Well, there are two different like, perspectives that you can take to, to the, the polishing, to really the selection pressures that are put yeah. on the idea. Yeah, exactly.
1: You put selection pressure. You're doing, like, you know, survival of the fittest. Yeah, yeah. But yeah.
0: So there are two different ways you can look at that. And both of them are, in my opinion actual in the context of cultural evolution so there's the memes i view there's the memetics perspective which is you know using the the daniel dennett um phrase you say qui bono you know who benefits from the selection process and th- what you're saying is that the ideas are becoming stronger they're not becoming better ideas they're becoming yeah, stronger they're ideas stronger. But there is also, in cultural evolution, there is also an intelligent design component. And that is... Particularly, that's what we're aiming for with critical engagement. We do also inadvertently cause memetic selection, but we are aiming for intelligent design. And there's no better way of doing it. Like, just, you know, kind of to your point initially, just ignoring the thing. um, I mean, (laughs) to your point outside of my analogy of the mind, you... saying you need to engage with these ideas because otherwise they run amok and of course i agree with that
1: yeah i mean i like but at the same time you know intelligent design or not i feel like you know uh, the intelligent design part is like you know we're playing a multi-dimensional game of pool and your intelligent design is where to strike the you know ball this direction or that direction but you have no idea how it all will fit into the system. And, you know, you're striking the ball there, somebody else is striking their ball in completely opposite direction, they collide, you know, like, and so on, so on, so on, so on. Like, we do have the control of, I mean, I know that some would say that we don't have, but I think we do have control of, of, you know, the ideas that we spread, the words that we say and the actions that we do. But this is kind of where intelligent design ends. Uh, Like, the way the what you know emerges out of our human interactions is so much more complex mm. that you can basically say that individual intelligent design there is not really relevant oh yeah like, totally it's it's very much a collective
0: process I mean all knowledge growth science is a collective process it's not individual geniuses that make these things happen for exactly the reasons that you're talking about. And we certainly don't know what chimeras might emerge if we put pressure on things in this way and that way. And we should have yeah. no, no illusion that we have a complete understanding of the evolutionary trajectory of any given idea yeah. such that we can predict its future. That would be the utopian okay. fallacy, right?
1: Yeah. My point, I guess, here would be that we want to create a system in which our intervention is as minimal as possible, in which we, uh, you know, select for ideas like as, like, in which we, uh, you know, try to affect the system or direct the system as minimally as possible, because we can't predict where it will go. You know, maybe we will squeeze here, and then you know, three centuries later, it will bite us back, and uh, like we just we don't know, so we can't predict so we want to minimize the uh, possibility of uh, error and the maximum error happens when we try to make things work the way we think it's you know it's valid well, like this, the most troubles of humanity arise when hu- some group of humans decide this is the way it should be let us do like this and then we have world wars yeah. and then we have communism and then we have like, like social justice wars then we have like all of this yeah. when we like this is the way it should be. Like fuck you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's utopianism, right? Um, so you're absolutely right. What we need is a is a system or systems that allow and firstly acknowledge the reality because it happens no matter what. That's the thing. Change happens, and it happens, like you've said, on a, in a multi-dimensional phase space. And we are certainly incapable of predicting the, um, you know, future outcomes of this change. And, you know, we've talked previously on the podcast about how, you know, the pace of change has accelerated to such a point that the event horizon is, you know, that the point beyond which we cannot predict the future is closer than ever. We've talked about how that makes people uneasy. We've talked about conservative responses to that. You know, we've talked about uh, all of that stuff. Um So what we need is a system or systems that allows for change... And acknowledges the fact of human frailty, human fallibility, and the fact that we can't accurately predict the future. So we need political systems that accommodate for that. And they obviously can't be fascism or, or communism or anything too centralised in which one group gets into power and gets to stay in power forever or until another group overthrows them. You know, this is why we <laughs> have <laughs> democracy. Um, but, you know... I, <laughs> but in, hang, you on, hang on, democracy. hang on. Hang um, on. But... That doesn't mean that we want a system or that it's even possible in which we are not going to be, you know, interfering or in some way that. Humans are not going to be, you know. Let's not talk about AI for for the moment, but that humans are not going to be the major source of the selection pressures. It's just that they're not top-down selection pressures. So Karl Popper had a very, you know, um, lucid discussion of all this stuff in his books um, on the open society. Um, you know he had the open society and its enemies this you know very large book about the application of really a, an evolutionary theory of the growth and progress of knowledge, his conjectures and refutations basically right. to politics and so he differentiated between, piecemeal social engineering, and uh, now I can't remember his exact term, but it might be holistic or whole scale or, or whatever, social engineering. The latter is obviously utopianism. The latter is when one personal group of people say, we know how it needs to be, we can completely restructure the society, we know exactly how it has to be. Whereas piecemeal social engineering is where we can identify individual problems. And of course, we're fallible. You know, Popper is a fallibilist, so we're fallible even in our identification of, of problems, but we can definitely say there are problems, and the only way they do get fixed in human societies is by people engaging with them and trying to fix them in the messy and noisy way that this always ends up. And they create new problems, and then we have to try and fix them, and we can't predict them before they arise and, and all of that yeah. stuff.
1: Yeah. But well, maybe we can minimize the aer- 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 risal Arisal. <laughs> um, or, what's the noun from arise? Arisal?
0: I don't know. When I speak to you, uh, funny things happen to my vocabulary because I hear so many, you know, slightly off, you know, funny neologisms, uh, and and sometimes it just it just blanks my mind. And then if I say something, I'm like, oh god, is that actually right? Um, <laughs> So you know, much as I love you, I have to say that you have not been good for my eloquence in conversation. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I have to say that it it worked for me in reverse. So we kind of we you know. So we're meeting
0: each other in the middle, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, my English has become dramatically better because of, you know, talking to. You. So I guess you know what you lost, I can. So yeah. none's good. Yeah. I mean, finish finish it up. To finish it up and bring it back to the bring it back. uh, Bring it
0: back.
1: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. bring it back to the uh, the initial topic, right? The um, ground that we'll you know we lost. So we understood that you know not the way we thought, and now we lost the ground. And I think. You know the way to solve it is to first acknowledge that a you know we don't have a solution to this problem Mm. from you know any of the ways that science doesn't have the solution to the you know meaning of life question Mm. that you know religion doesn't like we don't we don't have the solution that we would be sure of and so that we should then uh, instead of saying hey you know we think our solution is better or you know this is the better way to get the solution I think we should establish the Um, like, the ground, you know, where's the ground? And I think the ground is that in order to solve this question, we need to have two things. We need to have, you know, place to live, and we need to have people that are solving this issue, right? So we need to have planet Earth, and we need to have humanity. So any ideology, anything that says that meaning of life lies outside of those is by default, you know, uh, wrong. So... Mm -hmm if we like, we kind of need to establish a, you know, seeking mechanism and then we can continue on. We can debate. We can, you know, have, you know, anybody who is engaged in thinking about meaning of life come forward and you know debate it. But we need to establish that there are, you know, several uh, like, you know, primal axioms that allow us to solve this question. And this is that, you know, we need to preserve Earth. And we need to preserve humanity mm-hmm. for as long as it takes mm-hmm. for us to solve this question. Sure. So any, any ideology or anything that goes against those two points you know, is invalid.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's, that's very true. Um, I think that's a good place to mostly wrap things up. So I will reveal the, um, the author is Sean Carroll. You know, theoretical phys- right. yeah, theoretical physicist Sean Carroll, um, and it's a, an excerpt from his book The Big Picture on the origins of life, meaning and the universe itself, which I think is I haven't read the whole thing yet, but uh, I think it's a good book, a very interesting book. And I've watched um, actually several years ago his his several of his talks from the speaking tour that he did when the book first came out. I think he's a very lucid guy, and something that he's comfortable with. That a lot of uh, you know, very scientific or even you know, scientistic um, popular science authors, whether they are scientists or not, um, are often not comfortable with is the levels of description thing, where he says, uh, which is correct, that all the levels of description are very important, and um, however he does have this tendency that he kind of doesn't want to give up towards privileging, and I guess it's because he's a theoretical physicist, towards privileging the very, very small stuff, the smallest stuff we know about, as being the most fundamental level of reality. So he has a kind of, you know, somewhat, you know, physics chauvinism or, or fundamental chauvinism um. Which is, is mostly implicit, but every now and then he says it. And I, you know, I love all this stuff he says about. Uh, he doesn't use the term levels of description, but he talks about our requirement for having, you know, meaning on the human level and descriptions at all these different levels, and how all the sciences are, you know, extremely important and interdependent and not necessarily intertranslatable, and all of that kind of stuff he's got all of that and i love that but then he'll usually sneak in right at the end but all that's really really real is the really really small stuff and i just think <laughs> you know it's always just there that you know he is at heart a reductionist and i really think that that is completely arbitrary now you know i'm i'm very convinced that that it's totally arbitrary to say that one level of description is more real or more fundamental than another. I mean, we could easily argue that the human
1: level is discuss, the really fundamental. Discuss that. We should discuss that some. Like, yeah, so we'll much. we'll do that on another on
0: another podcast. We'll. we'll <laughs> of
1: our, one of the favorite topics of our discussion.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll. I mean, we have talked about it a little bit on the podcast, but we'll do a, We'll do one dedicated to to what is real or what is reality. Uh, so anyone a, who's still yeah. listening at this point. Uh, podcast about what is real or what is really, really real uh, you know, coming your way in the not too distant future Um, and thanks for listening and up to this point